morning, Victory Church. Don't get worried. Pastor Michael is still coming to deliver the word. I just asked if I could have a few minutes of your time. We want to pay honor, pay tribute to uh, some special people around here at Victory. Friday was our annual first responders luncheon, and uh, I have, I've heard that the food was fabulous. And uh, even better than that were the teams that showed up to serve the men and women in our community. Uh, but one special team in particular, Mr. Darren Johnson, if you'll come forward. This guy, let me tell you what, they brought a camper, stayed the night here to make sure that barbecue was finger licking good. And so <laughs> spent the night to make sure that those guys and those gals ate good. And so we want to honor this guy and then the team that, that worked so hard. We thank you so much for your service. And and another thing, uh, Wednesday night we had a great time. Our serve team got together and uh, just just talked about vision and, and what God's doing at Victory. And we made sure to pay tribute to all our teams. But I made a goof and I left out one of the teams. And that's our media, our, our tech team. And without them, literally, we would be in the dark around here. They take care of everything, the lights, the sound, the jumbotron. They keep it all going. And so I want to pay special tribute to them and in particular the team captain, Mr. Josh Stark, if you'll come forward. No hiding behind the booth. We have a trophy for you, mister. We have a trophy. We, we had a little competition on Wednesday to the teams uh, who had the greatest participation, and um, we, we, we kept one just set aside for special occasions such as these. So to the greatest team in history, that's what it says right here. We want to honor our media team, so thank you. Also, a special thanks to Darren McCollum from the Boys and Girls Club. He gave all the bread for all of our barbecues, so thank you, Darren. A lot of the ladies cooked some wonderful pies and cakes and cookies and all of that. Johnson over there, Darren, have you been to Bass Pro Shop yet? <laughs> well, you got a really nice gift card in there, so when you go, you can go have a good time. All right, how many of you are thankful that Jesus loves you this morning? And we love him because he first loved us. Uh, stand with me, please, if you would. We're going to jump in today to number two in the Built series. This one is called Built Together, God's Dwelling Place. Say that with me, please. Built Together, God's Dwelling Place. Our text, our series text that we're going to read every week in six weeks. Hopefully you'll have this one memorized and put into your toolbox. Let's get it together from Ephesians 2.20. Here we go. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God, thank you for your gift to us of grace and salvation and love and mercy. Thank you that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Thank you that... Uh, we, weren't, we once were dead in sin, but now we're alive in Christ, and you call us saints and the faithful in Christ. God, we ask you as we open the word this morning that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray along with the Apostle Paul that you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, the eyes of our hearts be opened so that we can know what is the hope of his calling and what is the glorious inheritance uh, in the saints. God, we thank you today that as you give us understanding, thank you that the gospel goes forth. Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do in this place. 
to raise a dead man, a dead woman to life in this service. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Be careful to give him all the glory as you're seated today. Ephesians chapter 1 deals with all of our spiritual possessions, our possessions in Christ. We are rich, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 talks about uh, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says that we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And it says when the Holy Spirit seals us, we've been given the earnest, the, the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee of the fullness of our inheritance. Ephesians 1 uses a lot of economic financial terms talking about the riches that are ours in Christ. Ephesians 1 is about spiritual possessions. Ephesians 2 is about spiritual position. Everybody say position. As we look this morning to this great passage of scripture, there is one thing that I want to give you. I want to make sure it's going to be woven in and throughout the context of this message. And I'd like you to read this out loud with me, please. We're going to get it at least twice. Here we go. Sin's work made us dead and separated us from God. God's work made us alive and united us in Christ. Get it again. Sin's work made us dead and separated us from God. God's work made us alive and united in Christ. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was in bondage, but now I'm free. I was in darkness, but now I'm light in the Lord. Are you with me? This whole text, this whole chapter is all about our position in Christ, our standing, our status. Southern churchianity is absorbed with the idea of how low down, no good you are. Granted, Before Christ, that was all of our testimony. But I'm no longer living B.C. I'm living in the year of our Lord. Christ is now in me. He's become part of me. I have been joined to Him. I am united in Christ. And so this morning, I'm preaching to you about your identity, not about who you used to be, but about who you are now. Are you hearing me this morning? Three things I want you to get. Number one, the first one is sin's work. Because the Apostle Paul gives us a really good, clear picture of what we used to be. I'm going to get the first three verses. Here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now what I want you to see here is the amazing usage all of past tense. Look at your neighbor and say, that's what you used to be. But now in Christ... You're no longer dead. You've been made alive. This is what I want you to see here. This is a a nature issue. You were by nature children of wrath. But now you have a new nature in you. 
There's a new nature. You're no longer driven to sin and unrighteousness, but you have the nature of Jesus Christ now on the inside of you, and your nature now is to do righteous things. You have a choice. And I would just share with you that as I begin this morning, that when you don't, it's because for a momentary lapse of memory, you've forgotten who you are. I, I remember from, uh, from the old movie, the classic that was written by uh, Margaret Mitchell called Gone with the Wind. And if you'll remember, it was, it was Rhett Butler and it was Scarlett O'Hara. It was Clark Gable and it was Vivian Lee. And there were a lot of other great characters in the movie and there was an old doctor named Dr. Mead. And there was a little, kind of little skinny, screaming little slave. I think her name, what was her name? I don't know nothing about birth of no babies, Miss Scarlett. Prissy, thank you. And I remember the scene where the baby's about to be birthed from their daughter Melody, I believe, or Melanie. And um, they're sitting in the parlor together. And Mrs. Mead makes some kind of comment that was not appropriate. And Dr. Mead looks at his wife and he said, Mrs. Mead, remember yourself. <laughs> How many of you think that could possibly apply to you when you're making hard choices in life? Look at your neighbor and say, remember yourself. <laughs> the struggles that we face are because we have forgotten who we are now. And we start going back and living in who we used to be, B.C., before Christ. The whole religious system is all about putting on a show and having an image and all of these kinds of things and, and sometimes we sort of revel in the false humility of just saying, well, I'm just a no good old sinner. I'm saved by grace. We'll throw that little bit, at least that in. But I'm just an old sinner. It's almost as if there's no difference between you and the rest of the world other than you've just got a second chance. And I just believe that the gospel has had more of a true transformative effect in the sense of you being called a new creation in Christ. The Spirit of God is dwelling on the inside of you now. You were dead, but now you're alive. You can't tell me you're the same old God just with another chance. You're a whole different person. A whole new creation. Come on. Come on, the 9 o'clock group had more amen in them than y'all have got. Are y'all awake this morning? Come on, you got to sleep longer. Now I expect you to come on, be alive in here with me today. We started the service singing, made alive in God. I once was dead in sin. But you pulled us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. It's a nature issue. Listen to this. You sinned because you were by nature a sinner. You did what spiritually dead people do. You weren't called a sinner because you sinned, but you sinned because you were a sinner. It is an affront to the cross of Christ to continue to label yourself in that same old nature perspective because you have a new nature now on the inside of you and you have a choice. And the choice that you make that is not according to righteousness is because you have a momentary lapse and you're not living out of your true identity. Come on, somebody. I'm trying to help a few folks in here this morning. What you used to do is you did what dead people do. You were unable to understand and appreciate spiritual things. This is what dead people do. Let me just say this to you. The unbeliever is not sick. He's dead. He's dead. Now let me just tell you, you can dress him up and you can, just, you can spray the whole funeral parlor and it can smell good and you can decorate it in flowers and it can look good, but it's still death. 
You can be dressed up where you casket sharp, as Medea said. And there are plenty of folks in church this morning are casket sharp. I'm saying something. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So one guy said, I smell what you're stepping in. The unbeliever is not sick, he's dead. Now, there are varying degrees in terms of the state of decay. This is what we happen to do in the, the Bible Belt South, in the Southern Churchianity and our religiosity. We say, well, I go to the Kiwanis Club, and I'm a member of the Rotary, and I'm on the deacon board, and we can all along just still be dead in sin, dead as the skid row bum, and we think that we're better than. Not only not just realizing that the skid row bum has a greater degree of visible state of decay. You're sitting there all dressed up, casket sharp, looking good, and still dead on the inside. Come on, somebody. Dead to the things of God. And because dead people do what disobedient people do, this is how he defines us here. Disobedient, we're depraved, we're doomed. Old man, old nature. Three forces make us disobedient in the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The spirit of the world, the whole, the, this cosmos, this whole order or arrangement of things, the way it's set up to work is to pull you down, drag you down. And then we've got a very real enemy who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But oh, let me help you get the record straight this morning. I grew up in a Pentecostal church and a lot of times the services that I remember as a little seven, eight, nine-year-old young boy is they spent half the time binding the devil and the other half the time glorifying and praising God. And how many of you know if you just praise God and you really praise Him with your whole heart and you're a, a church that is full of the Spirit of God and alive, there won't be any devil hanging around to rebuke in the first place. And it's almost as if we had a dualistic system of, oh, saints, you better pray. You better pray because the forces of evil and all of this is that it is at work and the sons of disobedience is coming against us. And saints, you better pray so God can win in the end. And you know what? I grew up out of that mess and I read the Bible and found out that God has already won. And it's not dependent on anything that I've got to do because it's a finished work that Jesus already did on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is a finished work. It is a work that declares this thing done from the foundation of the world. What we used to be is depraved. We were following and pleasing the desires of our flesh and the wishes of our mind. And let me just say this to you. Do not get confused with the, the old English word flesh. And even in some of the newer translations, they'll use the flesh. That does not mean your body. Your body is not in anything sinful. The flesh is the sin nature. Your sin nature is what drives you to do things that are sinful. But that's what motivates you when you're dead in sin. When you're alive in Christ, you have a new nature that is moving and motivating you and operating in you and challenging you to do righteous things. Come on, somebody. We used to be disobedient. We used to be depraved. We used to be doomed called children of wrath. We were, we were by deed sons of disobedience. We were by nature sons of wrath. The wrath of God was on us. But notice every one of those uh, verbs in that passage are all past tense. Were dead, were by nature children of wrath, once walked following, once lived in the passions of our flesh. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, that's not me anymore. I love it. Don't forget your new status we talked about last week in Ephesians 1. You're called saints just to be able to think about the possibility. Some of us have been so marinated in that hyper-religious kind of thinking 
That, that, that we're just always, we, 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 we get told every Sunday morning in a 20-minute sermonette for Christianettes that you're, you're going to sin a little bit every day. And guess what? You get your mind renewed in that and you go out and live out of that, that awareness, out of that identity. And I'm telling a people in this place that you're a new creation in Christ and you're motivated by a new nature, filled with the Holy Spirit. And God has called you to do works of righteousness. I love it. Look at this, verse 4. Verse 4. Look at the first two words. Say those first two words. They're emboldened in all caps. Here we go. But God. This is where we were. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, pleasing the desires of our souls and our minds and everything that our sinful nature pulled us into. And we're just on our way living in the world according to the flesh and the devil and the world and all of this stuff. But God. Come on. How do you remember Sesame Street? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Don't, come on, did you grow up watching that? Y'all get some schooling in this place? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Putting together words and phrases and sentences. And so this sentence here is an interruption. It's a conjunction that joins together. All of that that you used to be, you would still be in it. But God. Look at your neighbor and say, but God. I love it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Remember, we love Him because He first loved us when we were unlovable. Verse chapter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Listen, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead, there it is again, and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Is it still past tense? Yes, you have been. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. So that, I love it. Everybody say, so that. All this is not so what. This is all so that. God did all of this so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Two more verses in this section. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Salvation is a gift. It is not a reward. It is a gift from God. Come on, somebody. Three or four things here real quickly. Number one, He loved us. Theologians describe the love of God as an intrinsic attribute. It is who He is. It is His essence. It is His nature. As a matter of fact, the writer, the, 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 the John uh, wrote and he wrote an epistle. First John, he says, God is love. And so this word describes the very nature of who He is. Now when we talk about the intrinsic attributes of God... Uh, they describe Him, but when they move in our lives and as He relates to us as His creatures, as His sons and daughters, it comes out as something different. God is holy, but when that relates to us, it comes to us as the justice of God. God is truth, but when that comes to us, it comes as His faithfulness. He's, he's, his word is true. 
He will always keep His word. He hastens over His word to perform it. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return void. It shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. God's word is true because God is true. When we experience that, we experience His faithfulness. Well, what about God's love? When we see how much God loves us, it comes to us in grace and mercy. What we, what we start with in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Look at, look at your neighbor and say, He sure does love us real good. I know the grammar's bad, but you get my point. He made us alive together with Christ. Jesus raised three people from the dead in the Gospels, and every time He did, it was the product of the spoken word. He raised the widow's son in Luke 7. He raised Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. He raised Lazarus in John 11. And every time they were raised from the dead, he called them up out of the grave by the power of his spoken word. What does that say to us? You are made alive when the voice of Christ comes through the voice of a, of a gospel preacher proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you hear that word of the gospel and you receive it and believe it, then you are who once used to be dead, now you are made alive in Christ. You are resurrected in Christ. Come on, somebody. I love it. He not only raised us up together, but He seated us in a powerful place. We used to be in the graveyard... He raised us from the dead, but He didn't leave you to linger and hang around in the graveyard. He seated you in the throne of glory with His own Son, made us sit down together with Him in the heavenly places. Are you hearing that? Out of the graveyard to the throne of glory. He keeps us. Salvation is not something that is a reward, but it's a gift. And it's not something that I can earn or deserve. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says. It's all of God. He began it. He works in you. He finished the work at the cross with Jesus Christ, totally paid for it, completely finishing everything that would be required. It's not about what you do, but it's about everything that He has already done. Somebody say amen. amen. Three things here I want you to see. First of all, He worked for us. All these things. He loved us. He made us alive. He exalted us. He keeps us. Secondly, He works in us. Everybody say, God works in us. Here we go, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get the English derivative word poem. And so a workmanship is a masterpiece. Literally what Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, he's saying, you are God's masterpiece. He's writing his love letter to the world into your heart and into your soul. Now, most places, you don't ever even hear this kind of preaching because you're, it's always just a, a regular uh, just condemnation and sin consciousness and just the idea that you've got somebody standing up here right now actually reading out of the Bible telling you that God looks at you and calls you His masterpiece. That's just foreign to folks a lot of times in the Bible Belt. Because we don't get this kind of awareness. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So how does God work in us? He works three ways. Number one, everybody say the Word. If we read it and understand it and we meditate on it, it begins to cleanse us and to nourish us and to feed us. So the Word is one way that God works in us. Secondly, through prayer. 
I cry out to God and there is a transmission of power. God brings power. I've been in the Word. It starts to work in me and feed me, guide me, guard me, correct me, and I begin to pray and God brings power through that, that avenue or that agency of prayer. And the third one, let me just say to you, this, this one will not get me a New York Times bestseller. It won't fill up stadium crowds. It doesn't make it any less biblical or any less true. The third way that God works through you, first of all, is the Word. Second is prayer. Thirdly, what do you think it is? Everybody say suffering. Uh, We don't like to hear that. Especially today, a lot of the... I hate to even use the phrase because I don't want you to have anybody come to mind, but a lot of the prosperity preachers give the idea that you come to Jesus and everything is just all hunky-dory and wonderful and blessing and never any problems and all that kind of stuff. And that is completely, totally wrong. We go through things that God who works all things together according to His will and all together for our good that will bring us back to a place. When I realize I'm in a place of lack, I go back to the Word and I call out in prayer and then God infuses me with fresh power and understanding. And guess what? He takes me back again through a set of circumstances where I may suffer a little bit. All this is biblical. Read 1 Peter chapter 4. That's just one of multitudes of places where the the, the ministry of suffering where we experience and we become friends with pain because in that place of pain, God causes us to know Him in a way that is indescribable. It becomes a way, it becomes a, a, a way of a whole new realization of, uh, of His intimate love for us as we cry out to Him. So conversion is only the beginning. It's just the, we're, we're just the part of God's new creation. He begins to work in us because He's already worked for us at the cross. Now He's working in us. And then finally this morning in this section, He works through us. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, don't poo-poo good works. We need good works. Religion teaches you that faith plus your good works gets you saved. That's not biblical. It's not of works lest any man should boast. I just read that. I'm not going to go back. Listen, John Calvin said it this way. He said, It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never remain alone. We are not saved by faith plus good works, but by a faith that works. You hear the difference in that? Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Paul wrote and he said, I want you to abound to every good work. Be fruitful in every good work. When you're in the Bible, then you are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Be zealous of good works, he wrote to Titus. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. I'm thankful today that He can work through me because He has been working in me and He has worked for me 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Did you, did you hear that this morning? God can work through us now because He is working in us now because 2,000 years ago He finished the work for us. You know, the issue is today though we have been set free from the grave of sin and death, a lot of times believers never do begin to understand who they are in Christ, so they're still walking around in their old grave clothes. 
So the Apostle Paul talks about putting off the old man, which is corrupt according to its deceitful nature, and putting on the new man, which is renewed after the image in which it was originally created from Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians and all these great letters. Paul keeps talking about putting off the old and putting on the new. Everybody say, put off your grave clothes. Say it, put off your grave clothes. Put on your grace clothes. So we've got to take off the old, dingy, casket sharpness of going through the religious motions and realize that we have a whole new wardrobe of grace now, the Lord Jesus Christ, the armor of God we're going to be talking about in the months of June and July. Historically, this next section, historically from 1500 B.C. I've taught world civilization for several years now in various colleges and universities from Arkansas State and Victory University in Memphis, Visible, Mid-South Community College, been an adjunct on every one of these faculties around here, and have either taught world civilization or have taught American history. Historically, from 1500 B.C. to 850 A.D., there were over 7,500, that's 7,500, 7,500 eternal covenants that were written up for the purpose of bringing peace between nations none of which ever lasted for more than two years. 7,500, and they were all called eternal covenants in order to bring peace between warring tribes and nations and people groups. And peace never lasted longer than a couple of years. Now I want to tell you this morning that the only eternal covenant that has lasted is the one that was made in the eternal Godhead with God the Father who appropriated it before the foundation of the world, the Son who acquired it and ratified it in His own blood 2,000 years ago, and God the Holy Spirit who is right now walking the aisles of this church applying that covenant into your life this morning. That's the only eternal covenant that has ever lasted. Now, this first section we've talked this morning about separation from God as sinners. There's another separation that God deals with here. I'm not going to take a long time on I want to just kind of move real quickly through. And that is the separation between Jew and Gentile, between the chosen people of God and all of the other ethnos. And we get the word, English word ethnic from it. Ethnos is the Greek word for Gentile. It means heathen. It's the nations. It's all the other nations that are outside the choosing of God. Israel. Something happened to the Jews in that they took the law and rather than becoming a nation of priests themselves, ministering to all the other nations of the world as God had intended in Exodus chapter 19, some, something happened and they began to look down on all the other nations of the world and begin to call them dogs. And this is an American term that we use. Actually, if we really got very biblical, they would refer to all the other nations as swine. But I don't want to offend all of them, especially when you're in the middle of Barbecue Fest in Memphis in May and this whole swine country that we're in here, especially since we just enjoyed some Friday uh, in the blessing of the Lord. But that would be the way that... The rest of the Eastern world would define this term. They would call all the Gentiles swine, pigs, the lowliest of the lowly animals. Dave McDaniel told me there's only one pig in Afghanistan and it's in the zoo in Kabul and the people flock to see it because they've all heard about And it's such a pejorative term of, of negativity and evil in terms of all of you swine. 
And so this is what happened when the Jews began to refer to all the other ethnos, all the other nations, all the other the people groups as swine, and they were the chosen ones looking down on them and calling them Gentile dogs. Then God begins to move in order to deal with the separation. Look at, look at the separation here, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. Stop right here. we got two groups. The Jews are God's people. They have a covenant mark in their flesh. All the males are circumcised. It is a mark of distinction. The rest of the nations of the world don't have that, but the chosen people of God are circumcised. Now in the new covenant, it is not circumcision of the flesh. It is circumcision of the heart. Colossians chapter 2 says, When we were baptized into Christ, we were heart circumcised. So we now have a new mark of the covenant on us in the eternal covenant of Jesus Christ. No longer in the flesh made by hands, but now it's in the heart done as a work of the Spirit. Somebody say amen. So we've got two groups. Separation. Hostility. Enmity is the old King James word. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. Man, this is everything you used to be. You, you were not in the in crowd. You remember what it was in the eighth grade when all the cliques were running around and you went to sit down at a table and you found out that you were not a part of that group and you got sort of shooed on away? And so this is what's going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews have become very prideful and arrogant about their position with God because of their spiritual father Moses and because of their connection to Abraham and because of the law of God. And the law, by the way, remember, gives us what is the difference between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. The faithful Jews keep the dietary laws and all the Gentiles don't. So they're swine. They're dogs. And all of those people are, are without Christ. They, they're aliens. They're foreigners. They have no citizenship. They're strangers from the covenants of promise. They have no hope and they're without God in the world. But folks, that's not who you are anymore. Amen. Now you, are, you have position. You are in Christ. You have citizenship. You're in a holy nation called the church. You're no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints, the Bible says. You're not without God, but the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has now become your God and Father. Somebody say amen. Look at verse 13. I love this. Verse 4 gave us but God. Now look at verse 13. Everybody say it. Here we go. But now. Here's another one of those great interruptions. We were dead in sin, but God. We were separated with folks that were looking down their noses at us, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to see. God makes a move in our separation from sin to restore us from death to life. And He makes a move to destroy the hostility that is between the Jews and the Gentiles. Here we go. God reconciles us. Listen to verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Everybody say hostility. If there's a key word in this passage, it's hostility. I have it in your notes, the word enmity there. If you've got something to write with, go down there and write hostility. They're hostile to each other. In his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man 
in place of the two, so making peace. Now verse 14 says Christ is our peace. Verse 15 says he created, he made peace. Two different groups separated, hostile, enemies of each other. And in Christ at the cross, he tore down the wall that separated and he made peace. He brought us together in one. Now you're going to get this in a minute. And he says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Really good neighbor say it's kilt. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace. Look at there. Verse 14, he is our peace. Verse 15, he made peace, created peace. And verse 17, he's preaching peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He tore down the wall. Now get this, stay with me. Literally in Herod's temple there is a wall that divides what's called the court of the Gentiles and the inner place where the Jews have access to and the Gentiles can't go. When Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago and the earth shook and trembled, the temple was des- desecrated. The veil was rent from top to bottom signifying that the wall of separation that was between us as sinners and God as Savior was now wide open and we have complete access in Jesus Christ. Now, God started that thing in terms of destroying the temple in that moment and He said to the people that were standing there in Matthew 24, this generation will not see death until they see the kingdom of God come. And He said, not one stone will be left standing on this natural temple. And by 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, marched into Jerusalem from 66, 67 through 70 AD. It's a complete desecration. Completely destroying the temple. The sacrificial system totally ended. And I want to tell you to never, ever be renewed again. There are a group of people today called dispensationalists that will teach you that that will start again. And I would just ask you this very simple question. If the blood of bulls and goats never could save anybody in the first place, and that's what the book of Hebrews says, and the blood of Jesus Christ was the final once and for all payment for the sins of the whole world, why would God go back to a system that never worked in the first place? Oh, they may build a temple, but I'm telling you right now, the glory of God will never fill it because He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That's the Bible. Most of you have never even heard words like this because the TV preachers are giving you this bunch of nonsense that all happened to stir up about the same time that all of the cults in America hit in the mid-1800s. Dispensationalism is all about rebuilding the wall of partition and separating Jew and Gentile, Israel and the church. And it's all about saying God's running two different programs. And I'm telling you, God's not that schizophrenic. There's one new man. He tore down the wall of hostility. He destroyed it by His cross. The Scripture says He abolished the ordinances of the law. And if He he did away with it, Now the law still is an informant for us. It is the the written codified depiction of the nature of God. I am not above it, but neither am I under it. I don't live above the law as a lawless person, but I'm not underneath the penalty of the law any longer. I'm under grace. 
And God now is welcoming every person to as many as the Lord our God shall call, whether they're Jew or Greek. There is no difference. And this is what was so hard for all those early Jews in that day was to finally acknowledge and sit up and go, God's saving the Gentiles just like He is us. And He didn't make them go get circumcised first. They didn't have to become good Jews before they could become good Christians. The the invitation of the gospel is to whosoever will may come. Everyone in the world has an invitation. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give Him praise. Now there's no difference in the Jew and the Gentile. Whether you're bond or free, slave or Greek, male or female, all are one in Christ. Oh, my, 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 my. Come on. Finally, Christ united us. I'm finishing. Verse 19. So then you are no longer... Look at all these beautiful past tense. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Don't look at me and call me a Gentile Christian. I'm a spiritual Jew. I've been born of the Spirit. I am, his DNA is on the inside of me. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God which lives and abides forever. To call me a Gentile is to spit in the face of the work of the cross. Come on, guys. It's new to you because you never heard this because it's just the Bible. It's just right there in front of us. And we've missed it because we've had this pablum fed to us on TV and in Southern churchianity. The temple of the Lord is a people. Listen to this. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All this separation, God has brought us together in one holy nation. Book of Genesis, all the nations are defined as descendants of one of the sons of Noah. From that point on, Shem, Ham, Japheth. All the nations of the world become defined by their separation from one of those two ancestral heads. And just so that you see this, and I doubt there are not two people in the room who've ever even heard this before. Listen, Acts chapter 8, God saves an Ethiopian treasurer. He's called an Ethiopian eunuch. He is of the tribe of Ham. He's a descendant of Ham. Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus gets saved on the road to Damascus. He's a descendant of Shem. Acts chapter 10, a whole bunch of Gentiles, the Italian band. Come on, Reginelli, but Marconi, who was that? We don't know what their name was, but he was a Roman centurion. Ciao Bella. Gentiles of the Italian bands, what the Bible says. Acts chapter 10, the household of the Roman centurion. Cornelius, they're of the, the, the descendants from Japheth. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth, those dividing ancestral followers all in three chapters in the book of Acts are all reunited as one holy nation in Christ, come together, no longer differences. There is no difference between any of these groups. Are you hearing me? One family. Don't let anybody's bad eschatology tell you that you are less than or call you a Gentile any longer for that matter. That's an affront to the cross of Christ because you're not a heathen. You are not a stranger. You're not a foreigner. You're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying this morning? You're not just an old, no good sinner that happens to be saved by grace. No, you're a saint of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, motivated by a new nature in Christ to do righteous deeds. 
Come on, somebody. Finally, last thing, and I'm finished. We're growing together in a holy temple in the Lord. God walked with man in the garden. He chose to dwell with man in Exodus in the tabernacle of Moses until they blew it and the glory departed. And Solomon built God a temple and his glory set down in that until they blew it. And Ezekiel chapter 10 talks about the glory of God departing the natural temple. And finally, a temporary and a permanent natural temple, Tabernacle of Moses, Temple of Solomon, finally gives way to the primary temple that shows up. And John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. God who walked with man, who chose to dwell with man in tabernacles and temples, now no longer dwells in temples made with hands out of stone and bricks and mortar and steel, not in church buildings. This place is eerie when there's nobody around. If you don't think so, come up here about 1130 at night and just kind of you start hearing things creak and the building's like it's moving and you're going, oh, I've got to get out of here. I need to go home. And God's in this room this morning because He walked in with you. He walked in inside of you. You are the temple of the Lord. After the book of Acts, the Greek word hieron, which is the term used to describe the natural temple, is never again ever used for the rest of the epistles all the way to the book of Revelation. The only word for temple that's ever used from that point on never describes another natural temple. It describes the temple which God says your body is. 1 Corinthians 3.16 You've been bought with a price. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.19 2 Corinthians 6.16 For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk in them and they will... Be my people, I will be their God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, 17. It's not about a temple over there on the mount being built up and restored. And even if they do get something rebuilt over there, the glory of God will never fill it because the glory of God is about filling the lives of human beings now. You are the temple of the living God. Come on, somebody. I'm finished this morning. I hope that you've gotten something out of this and what we're trying to make alive in you is the fullness of who you are now in Christ and no longer pounding you with how bad and who you used to be B.C., before Christ. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were a slave, but now you're free. Come on, saints. You used to be blind, but now you see. Whatever it is that describes who you used to be in Christ God has turned that thing around. You were in the dominion of darkness. Now you've been set free into the kingdom of His dear Son. Forgiven, redeemed, restored. Walking in newness of life. Come on, somebody. So I would ask you right now as I bring this message to a close this morning. Have you personally experienced this love of God that I've described today that comes to us as He relates to His creatures in grace and in mercy. But God, who is rich in love, wherewith He hath loved us, for by grace you have been saved. I don't know what kind of road you're on this morning, what course you're following, what passions are leading you, whether it's a heart for God or it's a heart for the world, the flesh, the devil, lust of the eyes, lust of 
pride of life, all of these things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, all these things that gravitate and try to pull every one of us down. I would just say to you today that if you've never crossed the line of faith, I'd like you to bow your hearts with me, please, right now for a word of prayer. You're at a place possibly dead in sin this morning. And your life might look casket sharp, but it's still dead. Right now, the voice of the word of the Lord by the gospel is coming and calling you. Holy Spirit of God right now is calling you out of death into life, out of darkness into light. Very simply, you understand that salvation is a gift. It's not a reward. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Very simply, you just say this, Jesus, save me. I trust you. You make that your prayer. If that's you right now and you're ready to pray that and you want to say, Pastor, please pray for me before we leave this place today. No one's looking around. Please slip up your hand. I want to pray for you right now. God wants to give you a fresh start. I see a hand back there on the back and on another one, okay? Brother and a sister. Anybody else? Another one, okay? Over here on this side, all right? All right, anybody else this morning? Quickly, before we pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Take this moment and just say this in your heart. Jesus, save me. I trust you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for life. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I turn from my past, who I used to be, and I turn to you. I look to you. I trust you. I depend upon you, God. Change my life in Jesus' name. Now, before we leave this place and we say the amen, I believe that there's some believers sitting here under the sound of my voice. you got a struggle going on right now. And the struggle is because for a moment you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your identity. And I want to say to you by the Spirit right now, remember yourself. Remember yourself. Remember who you are. You're not without hope. You're not without Christ. You have a covenant of promise and God's word is true. And if that's you, heads bowed, eyes closed, you need some strength, you need a fresh start, slip up your hand. I want to pray for you right now. Father, in Jesus' name, all of this room, men and women, together I pray for the strength of God that we cry out to you, that you infuse us with power. Remind us, O oh God, of all that you've done. God, you worked for us. You're working in us so that you might work through us. We thank you for that. Let us go and be the temple of the Lord. Dwell in us by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Thank you for coming today. We hope that you were blessed by this word and this time in worship. As we close the service this morning, all of our regular attenders, our covenant members, please find your orange envelope. It says, Give. God promises that if we will give to the Lord what is His, that He will bless all the rest. For those of you that are the first time here today, thank you so much for coming. We pray that you'll come back and be with us and be our guest again. We're not asking you to participate in this portion of the service. Please take your connection card with you into the foyer and give it to one of our people in a serve shirt. They, they want to give you a gift. We're thrilled that you've come. As we close.